So say you're an Australian GP and you're prescribing medications to patients in Australia. And you probably know that there's been some pretty significant changes legislated on how and what you can prescribe in terms of medications from the 1st of February. So what's it all about? What impact does it have? And what does it even mean? Today, we're sitting down with a panel of experts from Best Practice Software to take a deep dive into the myths, the legends, and the realities of active ingredient prescribing. We're going to learn how the active ingredient prescribing initiative began and the reasons that promoted a change to how Australian doctors prescribe medication. We're going to explore the impact the new initiative is going to have on your practice, any exceptions that might exist, and why it's important to update your practice management software for AIP compatibility and what happens if you don't upgrade. So hey, Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today are a few members of the team from Best Practice Software. Going around the room with me, I have Dr. Frank Pyfinch, the CEO and co-founder of Best Practice. He's a GP with more than a decade's worth of experience as a pioneer of the Australian medical software development space. We've got Lorraine Pyfinch, co-founder and director of Best Practice Software. She's responsible for the company's strategic and operational decision-making and all of their regulatory and statutory obligations. By the way, Frank and Lorraine have been on the show before, way back in episode 23, which you can go back and listen to the wonderful backstory of how Best Practice came about. And we recorded that in the Best Practice offices way back in November 2019 in person. And those were definitely simpler times then. We have as well Dr. Fabrina Hussain. She's the clinical advisor at Best Practice, and she provides advice and guidance to the development of Best Practice products. She's got nine years of software development experience, and then now she's a practicing GP in Queensland. And as well, we've got Will Durnford, product manager at Best Practice. He's been part of the BP family for over 14 years, and he's currently focused on their third-party integrations across the entire Best Practice product suite. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Great. Good. Hi. Good. So good having everyone in the same, I was going to say room, but virtual room. So thank you all for making the time. And it's great to be able to connect and talk about quite an important topic that's very relevant and now for Australian doctors and Australian healthcare providers being active ingredient prescribing. And I thought, who better to have on the show to talk about what it all means than the friendly crew of best practice. So thank you all for making the time. Let's try and understand firstly how active ingredient prescribing works. I might ask Frank or Fabrina if you could set the scene. What is active ingredient prescribing? I can probably answer that. As you probably know, most drugs have a generic name and also a trade name or brand name. So the generic name is a, a chemical name and they're often quite long and complex sounding words. And to make it easier to remember the drug names, the companies have usually uh, given them a brand name so that something like ezometrazole, which is a generic name, is better known to people as LOSEC, which is much shorter and easier to spell and easier to remember. Active ingredient prescribing basically requires the active ingredient name to be on the prescription. So writing a prescription for LOSEC is now unlawful for the PBS at least, whereas writing a prescription for ezometrazole is the way that we should be doing it from now on. 
in certain cases, we may include the brand name as well, but the generic name, the active ingredient name must be included on the prescriptions. And so is that different to the way doctors are prescribing it now, Fabrina? Are you finding that it's more common doctors would be prescribing brand names? Usually, if we are familiar with a particular brand and we know that it's quite efficacious and doesn't have that many side effects, we might prefer to prescribe by brand name. However, having said that, we do learn about all of the active ingredients. So most doctors would know the actual medication name. In terms of like how it would change the way we prescribe, I guess prior to the change in the software, doctors could search and prescribe by brand name. And in these cases, the brand would be listed on the script rather than the actual active ingredient. So if we didn't want the pharmacist to provide a generic equivalent, then we'd tick a checkbox on the prescription stating that the brand substitution is not allowed. So that would be the way we would ensure that the brand was being given to the patient. From now on, though, if we use the software to generate a prescription and use the brand name to search the drug, we do explicitly have to define that that brand has to be printed on the prescription. Otherwise, it will just be the active ingredient only. So yes, it will be, you know, changing the way we prescribe medications. I'm really interested in that workflow component in a bit and we'll dig into that in a second, but just to understand the change as well, are there any exceptions? So there's always exceptions to the rule. What are the exceptions to the legislative change around AIP? Interestingly, the exceptions are handwritten prescriptions. They're not required to be done by active ingredient name. Products where the, there are more than three active ingredients don't need to have the active ingredients listed. Obviously, there's not a large number of those, but it's just a practical thing that writing four fairly long chemical names on the script, it takes up space and it can be more easily misinterpreted by the pharmacist. And I think then there's a list of products that are on the PBS that have been specifically excluded. And a lot of them are not necessarily medicines. The PBS, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, subsidizes a lot of things like nutritional supplements and dressings. Repatriation um, provides some of those sort of products on prescription and they're excluded from requiring active ingredients to be listed. Well, and so I'm thinking if I'm a GP and I'm using best practice or my practice management system and I'm used to prescribing brand names and typing them in to search for them. So they can still search for them that way, but then they'll show up on the script as the active ingredient as opposed to the brand name. Is that how it works? That is exactly right. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like then you'd need to, you know, do an upgrade for your practice management software to make sure it's compliant and it's all aligned with AIP. What happens if you don't update your practice management system? If they don't update the software, then their prescriptions will print as they did previously and those scripts will be technically invalid and potentially could be rejected by the pharmacy and rejected by the PBS. The PBS would not pay for those medications. Having said that, they did announce a few weeks back that there would be a six-month period during which scripts that were presented to pharmacies in the old format would still be honoured, but following that period, um, those scripts will not be PBS subsidised anymore. Yeah, okay. 
So a bit of a transition period or doctors will get very sore hands writing a lot of handwritten script. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not going to be sustainable. So it definitely seems, sounds like an upgrade would be needed. I'm keen to understand a bit more about the context as well. And maybe I might throw to Lorraine or Will to help me out here. What actually prompted the change to the way that Australian doctors prescribe medicine now? Uh, well, it was a legislated change. So that means that, you know, it's a compulsory thing. It wasn't something that came directly from our customers using VP. So uh, it was introduced by the Australian government. And um, so all software that is prescribing um, software in Australia had to comply. So everyone would have been required to upgrade their software accordingly. I would imagine that one of the major driving factors is the increasing costs of the PBS to the community. And this, I suppose, is another way of encouraging the use of generic prescriptions rather than potentially uh, more expensive brand names. There's also a safety component as well, making sure that people understand what they're taking. Patients who might have been used to taking a particular brand, if they suddenly get that changed because it's been substituted to a generic, could get confused. And, you know, that's a potential for uh, a medication error. The patient doesn't understand what the ingredients are of the medication they're taking. So this is also an education thing for patients as well. Will might be able to fill us in a little on some of the discussions that he's been attending on behalf of best practice over the past 12 or 18 months. Yeah, it actually probably goes back nearly three years now since the, I think it was announced in the 2017-2018 budget and put into the electronic prescribing initiative. That's where it was originally announced. And ever since then, we've been working collaboratively with industry to come up with the solution and how it could work. First of all, understanding existing workflows in prescribing software and ensuring that the legislative change that was put in place could actually work yeah, and so picturing that play out, so there's legislative changes that are made or said, okay, by this time, then scripts need to look like this. And then it's put to, I guess, the industry to then work out how to put that in practice. So how does that work? Kind of. It was collaborative at the start, understanding how prescribing software workflows worked. How are you selecting drugs? Do they have the option to prescribe already generically? Is it only by brand? So a room of about six or seven different our medical software vendors got together with the Department of Health and looked at prescribing software to get an understanding of how it did work. And then from there, the legislation was sort of carved out with an understanding, looked at the exemptions, looked at what you know, handwritten scripts you couldn't control, free text prescriptions in the software that were, were free typed in, weren't able to be controlled. So understanding some of those things in clinical software to then carve out the legislation. And so thinking then, again, from a GP or an end user's perspective of best practice software, how might that functionality change when it comes to prescribing within their software now? We tried very hard to make minimal impact on the workflow of GPs so that the searching and looking up of drugs is basically unchanged. As Fabrina said earlier, there is a single checkbox where... If the GP wants the drug to be prescribed with the brand name on the script, they can check that box as they're going through the prescription process. Um, but other than that, there's no um, impact to the GP on the changes. When the prescription gets printed, the active ingredient name will be included on the script and where it's possible that the patient may look at the script and say, this is different to what I usually get. 
and, and it may cause the GPs to have to spend a little bit more time explaining the changes. Yeah, I was going to say, because sometimes, well, a lot of the times there's changes that happen that are very relevant for us in industry, in inverted commas, but from a patient's perspective, it might not look any different to them. But patients will feel this change too as well. They'll see their script or they might be used to asking for their, like no, they know their medication by name and then they receive a script with the active ingredient on it as well. So it sounds like there's a bit of education that's needed from a patient side of things as well. And it sounds like GPs are going to have to do a lot of that themselves in the end. That's very true. In fact, it'll be interesting to ask Sabrina if she's started seeing any of that already. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Um, so in a few days where, you know, I've had to actually explain to the patient what this change is. They've heard about it on the news. So we've had to go through and explain how it would affect, how the changes would affect them. If they were on a specific brand, how the prescription would actually look different. I am having to spend that extra time with the patients, educating them about this new change. And how's it gone implementing it from a practice point of view? Has there been any impact on the GPs in clinics and doctors and practice staff? Well, for our practice managers, I guess they had to make sure that the software was up to date on time and they had to make sure that, you know, all of the doctors were on board and were aware of the changes. And of course, as you know, the associated teething problems with that, but clinics that I work with, it's been pretty easy. We also provide quite a lot of uh, educational material for our users. So there's plenty of information available from our website where they can review what's new in the update and um, how it might impact on them. I think our training people put together a little package that's on the website that can be downloaded and explains it all in detail to the GP. Perfect. We'll put a link for that in the show notes from this episode that people can check out too. And so Will or anyone else, I'm interested to understand any kind of feedback from those that might have concerns around, you know, the changes that are there or the frustrations they have or the impact that you've heard on the ground from individuals with these changes and how you're going about it. Yeah, Frank covered it originally there with the education time for the patient, Frank and Rubinia, that, that education piece. But there are so many connected systems now with GP software, the My Health Record, electronic prescribing. So there's a lot of considerations in the dis- on-screen display of medicines in those areas, you know, printing out health summaries for patients. So more and more sort of impacted areas come to light as the initiative rolls on. Um, but they're just some of them where we've had to have considerations about what do you put in the My Health record that's in a shared health summary for a patient? What is displayed in electronic prescription? Um, how does that display for the pharmacist once they've scanned that electronic script? Yeah, does it follow the rules of AIP? So the, to Frank's point about not changing the workflow or impacting the workflow very little for a GP, um, that had some great a easy adoption for a general practitioner or a prescriber to use, but the flow on effect with electronic prescribing has been that you have to display exactly what is going to dispense, not what's prescribed. Uh, where the doctor's prescribing by brand, the printout is the active ingredient list. So there's been some nuances that we've had to deal with in industry and uh, with those connected systems, but we've worked through them and things are going well now. Another impact that we've had a few doctors say, uh, get in touch since the system's been active and there are some products that have caused some concerns and the two that spring to mind immediately, the first one is insulin injections. There's a lot of different types of insulin and there's a lot of different brands that have different injection devices and 
when you just print the active ingredient name, you lose a lot of the information in that the script might just say insulin isophane 100 units, but it doesn't say which brand and which pen it is that the patient is used to using or has been taught to use. So that's one of the things. I thought insulin might have been on the list of excluded substances because it is a potential safety risk if they get their doses wrong. And the other one that's caused a bit of confusion is the oral contraceptive because there's quite a lot of brands of them and they all have fairly simple names, but they all include fairly common set of ingredients like norethisterone and ethanol estradiol. And people are getting a script for norethisterone 75 micrograms and ethanol estradiol 30 micrograms. And they take that to the chemist and they say, well, what is that? Is that <laughs> which, which pill is it? Is it low et? Is it Levelin? Is it Yaz? Is it no one? You know, there's been some problems that, well, some issues there that GPs aren't necessarily thinking to go and tick the brand name box. And so they're getting scripts that the chemists are unclear about what was actually intended to be given to the patient. And again, I had thought that oral contraceptives were going to be included in the exclusion list, but they weren't. Interesting. I'm picturing the whole life cycle of the process. You've got the patients and then you've got the healthcare providers, the GPs, and you've got the pharmacists, but you've also got the pharmaceutical companies as well. Is there any one of those groups that carry most of the load here with this change? It's Everyone's impacted in a different way. Is anyone really going to lose out or miss out or have a massive gain in this whole change? Anyone's perspective? I don't have a deal of connection with pharmacy or pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, they've raised concern though. You know, we've had probably about five to 10 reach out and say, show us how this looks now because we're familiar with brand prescribing and we know how to tell a GP or a prescriber how to choose the brand. Can you please show us your AIP implementation so that we understand how to tell our prescribers you know, what to do? So we've seen a lot of that come in. There's also been a fair bit of collaboration through the Medical Software Industry Association, which you'd be familiar with, Peter, but certainly most of the people involved in this change would already be members of the MSIA. So it's been really good the way MSIA has taken the lead and really encouraged collaboration because it's always an issue when you have a uh, Department of Health that may not understand the implications of these kinds of changes. And unless you get communication right and um, they understand, as Will said, how the prescription process happens now, just because it's a new idea or a new piece of legislation, they've got to understand what impact it's going to have um, out in the field. And, and anything that we can do to improve that communication is well received, I think. Yeah, totally agree with you that the work that the MSIA does in particular for those stakeholders in being that advocate and being able to bring things together and come to the best result out of the circumstances is definitely of value. Just to round things out that I'm thinking you know, for Brina or anyone else, real world application for GPs, are there any tips or advice for colleagues, for doctors on the ground, for clinics implementing these changes that they should keep in mind as of now because this is live? I found it really helpful to actually go through and look at the prescription and point out to the patient manually what the changes are. So since I've been doing that, I've picked up a couple of oral contraception pills, which were not clear, you know, what it was. So I went back and ensured that the brand name was on the prescription and we kind of discussed this with the patient. So I found that by actually going through the prescription with the patient, I'm avoiding that problem where the brand name isn't being printed on the script. So yeah, I find that helpful. 
Excellent. Look, well, thank you guys. It's been great to be able to cover the topic of active ingredient prescribing, get to know a little bit more about it. And I'll put some links to those really useful resources that are from best practice in the show notes from this episode on our website to link through to yours so people can learn more and they can get in touch with your team if they have any questions. Is there anything else that there'd be any advice or suggestions to those out in the field that are grappling with this change? I just probably have one more comment. I think doctors should be aware of some patients with, especially with low literacy levels where they do rely on, you know, the big brand names and the colorful boxes to identify their medications. So just to ensure that those patients have that understanding. So that would be my last comment, really. Perfect. Well, thank you, Will, Fabrina, Frank and Lorraine. It's been really insightful to understand a bit more about AIP, a really important topic for GPs in what has already been a pretty crazy past 12 months and something else to deal with. So it's great to hear that the changes that you're implementing are hopefully making it a bit easier for those on the ground. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.